Open your Bibles, please, to the book of Jonah, Jonah chapter 3. Uh, if you don't know where that is, it's a little bit more than halfway through your Bible. The easiest thing to do is just to go to the table of contents, because it is a very small book in the midst of a whole bunch of small books, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk. They're all super small, uh, but look for Jonah chapter 3. Uh, for the sake of our guests, we are continuing our sermon series entitled Running from God. And what we have been learning is that it is just as easy for us to run from God by following all the rules for all the wrong reasons as it is by overtly rejecting God. It's just as easy for us to engage in willful obedience where we know that we're trying to keep God at arm's length as it is for us to engage in willful disobedience. And Jonah has been the, the example for us where we have seen this has absolutely been the case. And in chapter 3 of the book of Jonah, we are going to see finally how these two different themes are going to converge onto one another. Jonah has already tried the willful disobedience, and now he's going to try the obedience, and let's just see where that goes. So the first two chapters of Jonah are about a prophet who receives a command from God to go to the national city of Assyria, that's modern-day Iraq, to go to a place called Nineveh. This was the global superpower of the day. There's no nation more powerful than Nineveh. But by the same token, we've also been learning that they are the most vile and corrupt and deceitful and evil nation ever known to humanity up to this point. They are engaging in the most heinous of acts, and Jonah wants nothing to do with this. And so he says, you know what, I'm going to go to not Nineveh. He goes down to the port city of Joppa, and he starts a 3,200-kilometer journey in the opposite direction to a place called Tarshish, which is, at that point in time, the farthest westerly point in the known world. He wants to get away from God's command. He wants to be as far away from that command as possible. And so to summarize chapter 1, I put it this way in your note sheet. Jonah runs away. God runs after him. Jonah runs away, and God runs after him. That's the heart of God. He sends a violent storm onto Jonah. And this might be initially seen as an act of God's judgment toward his disobedient prophet, but what we eventually see is that this is an act of mercy. God sends the violent storm. Jonah jumps over the fish. He's swallowed up by a fish. We think that this is the end of Jonah's life. And it eventually becomes the very mechanism by which God reinstates Jonah. And so that is the description of chapter 2. God disciplines and Jonah repents. Kind of. Kind of. What we see in chapter 2 is that he actually never engages in confession. He never says, I'm sorry. He never shows a repentant heart, but he says all the right words. He engages in repentance in as much as he recognizes that God is sovereign, God is the one who is orchestrating these events, and on account of Jonah's disobedience, he is sinking down, down, down to the depths. But what we eventually see 
is that this becomes his pathway back to life. And the fish vomits Jonah after three days and three nights onto dry ground. And this is the question that we ended with last week. Will God's mercy make Jonah merciful? Will God's mercy make Jonah merciful? And as I've been sharing with you the last couple of weeks, every single time we open up the Word of God, we don't have binocular Bibles, we have mirror Bibles. And the purpose of Jonah is for us to look at the pages of Scripture and to say, what is God saying to me? And so we can ask the same question of ourselves this morning. Will God's mercy make you merciful? Will God's mercy make me merciful? That's the question that we need to be asking ourselves up to this moment. So in chapter 3, we're going to see that Jonah, he's going to be at the really the high point of his career. So for those of you who are engaged in various vocational jobs, uh, what would be the, the quintessential high point of your career? And I'm not talking about like um, getting a pay raise or moving up the corporate ladder. I'm saying, what would be the highest attainable goal? Like, for instance, if you were a musician, I'm not saying that you could get like a number one hit, but you would be the quintessential icon of music. You would become the Beatles. Or uh, if you're engaged in the medical profession, it's not that you would eventually become a medical doctor, but you would find the cure for cancer, and the cure would be named after you. What would be like the high point of your given career? What would that look like? Because what we're going to see is that this is what Jonah is going to get in chapter 3, but he's not going to respond in the way that you might expect. So this is what we're going to learn this morning with chapter 3. Jonah preaches, Nineveh repents, and God forgives. And all three of these things up to this point ought to be shocking to us. In fact, the least shocking is that Jonah preaches. Even more shocking is that Nineveh repents. And the most shocking of all is that God chooses to forgive. That's where we're going. So take a look at this with me. Jonah, chapter 3, starting at verses 1 and 2. It says this, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. So stop right there. Here we see uh, an eerily familiar message. Exactly the same message that God had commanded Jonah in Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. And if I had more time, I would love to show you how chapters 1 and 2 of Jonah and chapters 3 and 4 of Jonah perfectly mirror each other. The, the narrative, the way that it's played out, is it's meant to help us compare and contrast what has happened up towards the first two chapters and what's going to happen in the next two chapters as well. So two commands, two command words in Hebrew, kum, lake, arise, go to the great city of Nineveh. God's already said that. We're three chapters in, 28 verses in, and we're already back at square one. But here's the thing that we need to see. This time, this time, we're hoping that on account of the miraculous account, encounter that Jonah has had, that he's actually going to obey. That he's going to follow suit. And the thing that I find so dramatic, so sad, really, 
is the fact that God had to command him a second time. I mean, just think about this for a second. He was just saved through the belly of a fish, vomited onto dry, onto dry land, and on account of that, this has been a miraculous encounter with God. You would think Jonah would be the first to speak and to say, God, say nothing at all. I know what I need to do. I need to go to Nineveh. But he needs additional prompting by God to go and to do this. And the question we have to ask is, how is he going to respond? Look at verse 3. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord, and he went to Nineveh. So he did it. He obeyed. We're three chapters in. We're 28 verses in. We're still at square one. We took the scenic route to get to this point, but we're finally here. Jonah finally obeys. But we're going to see that this is where things begin to take a dramatic turn as well. Here we learn a fundamental principle about the heart of God. I put it this way in your note sheet. God is thorough in his discipline, but he is also extravagant in his mercy. He's thorough in his discipline, but he's also extravagant in his mercy. He's, he's both of these things at the same time. Despite Jonah's continued disobedience, God still chooses to work through broken vessels like Jonah to bring about a redemptive message to those who most desperately need to hear it. He still works through us. And the example, again, is Jonah. We see how God is thorough in discipline and extravagant in his mercy. But here's where things begin to change. Look at verse 3 again. Now, Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. And Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, 40 more days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. There is so much packed into these two tiny little verses that I just want us to land the plane here for a little while and to see some of the things that might not be immediately apparent to us, but during this time, 800 years before Christ, every single person within the tribe of Israel would see that there are a couple of issues with this message. So here's what I want to do. I want us to explore essentially what are the marching orders for prophets in terms of where they're supposed to go and what they're supposed to do, and then to compare and contrast that to what Jonah ultimately does. So the first is through where, and the second is what. Let's look at where first. A prophet's marching orders in terms of location, they would always, always, always go to one of two places. They would go to the palace or the city square. They'd go to the palace or the city square. A, pro a prophet, he would always enter through the city gates, go to the very heart of the city, and if it was a noble city, he would go to the palace and he would talk directly to the king and his nobles and everyone else in the city courts, and he would issue the decree from God telling them that they need to repent. And if it wasn't a royal city, he would go to the most highly populated place within the city, the city square where there's all the rumbling and bustling and, and all of the, the trade that's going on, and he would proclaim the message there so that as many people as possible could hear this message. Now compare that to what Jonah is doing. I want to read again to you uh, verse 4, but this time I'm going to read uh, the ESV version because I feel like it holds a little more true to the Hebrew translation. Here's what it says. 
a visit required a three days journey. Now hear this. On the first day, circle, highlight, underline, Jonah started into the city and proclaimed, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. Do you see what's happening here? He's supposed to be traveling three full days into the heart of the city, going into the palace, talking to the king, but presumably he has just walked into the city, put his back up against the fringes of the city wall, and said five words. And then he goes back out. And so it should shock us here that Jonah isn't following through on his prophetic marching orders in terms of his location. But then there's also the content piece. And I want us to see that there are at least three things that a prophet always, always does that are prescriptive, meaning this is something that always happens when a prophet communicates to people, and then two things that are assumed, so five total. Number one is this, the decree. The decree. The first and perhaps most obvious part of any prophetic word was the actual message that they would deliver, highlighting to them the things that they are doing wrong, what God thinks of this, and that's kind of delivering the judgment. And Jonah actually does this, doesn't he? So if you're taking notes, you can put a little check mark next to number one. Jonah issues the decree. But also, number two, there's always, always, always the call to repentance. The call to repentance. This is the primary and most important task of any prophet to encourage sinners to turn from their ways and to follow God. You're going north, you need to be going south. You're heading in the wrong direction, and we need to turn around and to start walking toward God. Always, within any prophetic message, there's a call to repentance. Now, notice something there's no call to repentance in Jonah's message. Put a little X next to that one. But then as we keep reading this, the third thing that we notice is there's something missing from this message. What could it be? Oh yeah, there's no mention of God. There is no mention of God. In every single indication in Scripture, there's always, always, always two Hebrew words, Amar Yahweh, which simply means the word of the Lord. A prophet indicating, like many preachers indicate today, I'm not the sous chef. I'm not the chef. I'm the server. I'm just delivering the goods from God. These aren't my words. These are God's words that I'm communicating to you, and there's no mention of God's. That's the most glaring omission of all. But then there's two more things. The, the number four in your note sheet, I just said the length. You know, I mentioned uh, this week to staff that I'm preaching on the, most, the shortest, most successful sermon of all time. And Pastor Marcel said to me, that's the longest sermon outline I've ever seen. And so clearly I'm not talking about my own sermon this morning. But Jonah, in Hebrew, delivers literally five words. Forty days Nineveh will be overturned. Five words! Now, nowhere in Scripture does it say, you, you know, a, a message ought to be at least 20 minutes or at least an hour or anything like that. But we can rest assured that this is the shortest sermon in all of Scripture. And then here's the fifth and final piece that I want us to take note of. If repentance occurs, the prophet would always offer to help. 
And where's Jonah at this point? He's already fled east of the city, up onto a hill. He's got popcorn in hand, and he's waiting for God to bring down the judgment. He's left. He has no interest in staying in this city. But a prophet always, 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 if repentance occurred, would stick with the city, and he would teach them how to turn from their ways and to follow God. And Jonah has no interest in any of this. So just as a recap, knowing that it's a three-day journey into the heart of the city of Nineveh, on the first day, he says five words of hellfire and brimstone with no, call, with no call to repentance, no declaration that it's a word from the Lord, and then he flees east of the city to watch it burn. What can we take away from all of this? I think there's only one logical explanation, and it's this. Jonah's trying to sabotage his own message. He's trying to sabotage his own message. And in this moment, we see for the second time that Jonah, his heart really isn't in this. He's tried the disobedience path. Now he's going to try the obedience path. But here's the thing. His heart's not in it. He has no interest in delivering this message. So I'm going to do the very least possible that can be deemed obedience to the Lord's command while also erring on the side of letting the Assyrians burn. I don't want any part in this. If you're going to twist my arm, God, I'll go. I'll do what's required of me. But I have no interest in this message. And before reading ahead, at this point, we have to ask ourselves, how do you think the Assyrians are going to respond? Now, I know 90% of us know the end of the story, right? So we're already looking ahead. But just, just pretend you don't know the end of the story, all right? And if it's true that it takes multiple miracles and divine encounters with God for an obedient prophet named Jonah to finally follow God's will, how much more is it going to take for a vile and corrupt and deceitful city to obey God? I think we can all agree that it's going to take a little bit more than five words at the edge of the city, whispering it, and then leaving. It's going to take a little bit more than that, Jonah. But we all know that everything about this story is highly illogical. I said that to you last week. It seems in, in many ways the story doesn't really make logical sense. And why? Because God is in it. God is in this story. Look at verse 5. Here's how they respond. The Ninevites believed God. What? And a fast was proclaimed. What? And all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. And when Jonah, Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. And this is the proclamation he issued to Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and violence. Who knows? God may relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. 
really? That's all it takes? So what happens on account of Jonah's sabotage, effortless sermon is a revival breaks out. You know, when one person comes to know the Lord, we call that a conversion. When an entire city comes to know the Lord, we call that a revival. They all fall down. They all repent. They all put on sackcloth and ashes. Even the cows are part of this redemption project. And we look at this and we say, what's going on? Just a recap of the last three chapters. Chapter 1, we have the morally respectable Jonah who disobeys God. Chapter 2, we have the pagan sailors who obey God and they fall down in worship and they offer sacrifices to him. And chapter 3, we have the vile and pagan and corrupt nation of Assyria, and they fall down and worship God, and they put on sackcloth and ashes in hopes that God will relent in his anger. Everything about this story is upside down. And we look at verse 6, if your Bibles are open, take a look again. There's, There's something really fascinating about this story that doesn't really happen elsewhere in Scripture. Like I mentioned to you, typically prophets, they would go to the city square or they would go to the palace where the king resided. And he would share that message to the king and then the king would have a decision to make. Is he going to repent or is he going to throw out the prophet or worse? So typically, whenever a nation fell into repentance, it would start with the king. But in this story, that's not what happens. It's a grassroots movement. The entire city decides that they're going to fall into a fast before the king even issues the decree. And by the time it gets to his ears, he simply doubles down on their efforts and he says, yes, I agree with what all of you are doing. And he himself engages and he puts on sackcloth and ashes. And then also there's one other really interesting point in verse 4. Look at verse 4 and you're going to find the word overturn. If you're using another Bible, maybe you see overthrown or overturned or destroyed. That is the Hebrew word hapak, and this is an incredible word. It simply has a a variety of different words that you can use to describe it, but one of the images you should have in your mind is like when you till soil from last year's crop. What are you doing in that moment? You're killing all of last year's crop, in order to make way for a new crop. You are overturning the soil. So to overturn can be described as to destroy, to annihilate, to get rid of, but overturn can also mean to repent. And the author is intentionally being ambiguous here to highlight one of the fundamental principles of Scripture. And I put it this way in your note sheet. What Jonah intended for evil, God intended for good. What Jonah intended for evil, God intended for good. When Jonah delivers this message, 40 days Nineveh will be overturned, what he has in mind is in 40 days, God is going to wipe you all off the face of the earth. And I'm looking forward to that day. But here's the irony of this. His message actually comes true, just not in the way that he expected. Because within 40 days, 
It's not that the city is overturned, it's that their hearts are overturned, and they repent, and they turn toward God. That's verse 9. And so Jonah's words actually come true. But then we look to Jonah, and we realize that he's not very excited about the success of his sermon. You know, if I came in here this morning and said, I'm not going to go to the auditorium, I'm just going to go to the edge of the lobby, and I'm going to preach for five seconds, just five words, and then all of you fell down in sackcloth and ashes, and you put on your weeping clothes, and you decide that you're going to repent, and you're going to fast, and you're not going to eat anything or drink anything, I'd say, that was a pretty successful morning. Jonah is not impressed with the success of his sermon. He's on the city hill, and he is detesting God and what he is doing. Let's just look ahead. We're going to look at this more fully next week. But look at chapter 4, verse 1. Here's what it says. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. And he became angry. Now, this is a really difficult sentence to translate from Hebrew into English, but it's one of the most astounding in all of Scripture. I think one of the ways that we can translate it is this way. Jonah became evil with the evil he saw. Jonah became evil with the evil he saw. He became violently angry with God. But the question that we have to ask ourselves is why? Why is he violently angry? And maybe uh, another question we have to ask on the front end of that is, what is the ideal outcome for Jonah? What's he hoping for? What's he longing for? Well, I think it's pretty clear that he is longing for the entire nation to be wiped off of the face of the entire earth. This is the essence of the book of Jonah. It's subtle, but we have to see this. So here's a question that I want you to ask. Why is Jonah violently angry? It's not in spite of the fact that he's moral. It's not in spite of the fact that he's obedient. It's not in spite of the fact that he is a prophet. It is because he is moral and obedient and a prophet of God that he believes that on account of his righteousness and the lack thereof of righteousness of the Ninevites that he deserves grace and they deserve wrath. So his line of thinking goes a little bit like this. These people are sinners. They are evil. They deserve to be wiped out. And why haven't you annihilated them yet? You see, the very reason why, why Jonah believes he has a leg to stand on is because he, he has this, this fundamental view, this idea that the reason God loves me, the reason I can look at myself in the mirror, is because I am a moral person. I do the right things. I am obedient. I follow God's will. I obey the truth. And that's what gives Jonah this absurd idea that he has a leg to stand on when confronting God. I'm moral, they're not. I'm religious, they're not. I'm good, they're bad. I deserve your mercy, they deserve your wrath. That's how it goes in his mind. And so here's what, what I want you to see. I put it this way in your note sheet. It's on the basis of Jonah's morality 
that causes him to miss God's mercy. It's Jonah's morality that causes him to miss God's mercy. He says, I deserve this. They don't. And the great irony is we spent the last two weeks, chapter 1 and chapter 2, highlighting the fact that this morally obedient Jonah tries to run from God. And he receives grace upon grace upon grace, and that's what leads him to this moment. And the grace he has so lavishly received from God, he is unwilling to give to those who so desperately need it. He says, they don't deserve it, I do. And so there's something happening deep within his heart that he still does not yet fully understand about the heart and the character of God. And so here are some of the lessons that we can learn from Jonah in chapter 3. I think the first one we can learn is that we shouldn't assume to know the boundaries of God's forgiveness. Don't assume to know the boundaries of God's forgiveness. See, our God's grace and mercy, they go far beyond what we might think to be prudent or wise or reasonable. And at exactly the same time, we have to learn a whole lot about the depth and the breadth and the height of God's forgiveness. But we hold them in tension in recognizing that the forgiveness of God is necessary on the basis of the fact that we rebel against him and we're constantly turning toward God. We're constantly running in the opposite direction and we're just like Jonah in this way. That we are morally and spiritually bankrupt. We have nothing in and of ourselves that where we can save ourselves. And it's only on account of God's mercy that we can find rest. The second thing that I think is important for us to remember is this. Don't forget your mirror. Don't forget your mirror. I want you to track with me for a moment. I want to recap the last three chapters and looking just at the last verse of every chapter. Chapter one, like I said to you, we have the morally respectable Jonah and he disobeys God. But God in his grace, this is how he responds. Chapter one, verse 17. The Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah. That's his act of grace in chapter one. Then in chapter 2, we know that Jonah is falling down, down, down into the depths of the sea. And there's nothing that he can do to save himself. And God intervenes, chapter 2, verse 10, the end of that chapter. Now the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. So Jonah repents, and God provides mercy. That is how God always interacts with us as his people. And then we get to chapter 3. Verse 10, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and, not, and did not bring on them the destruction that he had threatened. So this story from beginning to end is a story of Jonah running from God, God giving chase, Jonah repenting, and God giving mercy. And then in chapter 3, the only difference, the only difference is we replace Jonah with the Ninevites. But Jonah still doesn't have the heart to see. You see, he's had a radical encounter with God. It has been a life-changing encounter. 
But what we have seen, unfortunately, is it has not yet been a heart-changing one. Because he's still the same Jonah who believes fundamentally that I deserve the grace of God that I found in Jonah chapter 1, verse 17, and Jonah chapter 2, verse 10. I deserve those things. But even though the Ninevites responded exactly the same way that I did, they do not deserve the grace that you gave them in chapter 3, verse 10. So Jonah, he's preaching the very message that he himself received from God. That's the great irony of this. And I think that's what we need to see in and of ourselves as well, because the story of Jonah isn't just about Jonah. It's about you and me. And how do we respond to the grace and the mercy of God? Do we see this as something just to be received? Or is it something that even as we receive it, we are quick to give it? Does our, our vertical relationship with God actually come to interact with our horizontal relationship with our neighbors, even those who don't deserve our mercy? How are we going to respond? And here's the third thing we learn. God will use whomever he chooses. He'll use whomever he chooses. When God chooses to work through people, he's not limited to using people who are godly or smart or helpful. We even learn from this passage, he doesn't even have to insist that they're willing. Jonah's not even willing to do this, and he's still there being used by God. God will use whomever he chooses. Sidebar for a moment. Do you know what happens 40 years after this story? The Ninevites sack the city of Israel. The very thing that Jonah feared actually happens. They come in. They sack the entire city. They take them back as slaves. And perhaps the very first time the Israelites read this story is while they're in captivity in Nineveh. And they're thinking to themselves, God, why? Jonah was right all along. And yet what we find in Scripture is that even this was the will of God. Because the heart of the people of Israel, they were far from God. And God uses this as a means of bringing back his people. We learn as much in Scripture. Let me read to you Isaiah chapter 10, verse 5 and 6. This is from Isaiah, who is actually an obedient prophet. And this is what happens. The Assyrian, the rod of my anger, that's God, in whose hand is the club of my wrath, I send him against the godless nation, that's Israel. I dispatch him against a people who anger me to seize loot and snatch plunder and to trample them down like mud in the streets. So God uses Assyria as a tool to bring Israel back into the fold, which initially feels like judgment, and it is, but God's attempt is to bring them back to mercy, for them to humble themselves and to draw near to God. And the Assyrians, they get high and mighty on themselves. And so here's what God says to the Assyrians. He says, I will punish the king of Assyria for the willful pride of his heart and the haughty look in his eyes. Does the axe raise itself above the person who swings it? Or the saw boast against the one who uses it? As if a rod were to yield, uh, wield the person who lifts it up, or a club brandish the one who is not wood. 
And so he brings in the Babylonians and they wipe out the Assyrians. And so here's this message that we learn. God will use whomever he chooses to bring about his redemptive purposes in the world. He can use people like me and people like you to bring about his redemptive purposes. And here's the fourth and final thing I believe we learn from chapter 3, and it's this. God's work was done in Nineveh, but it's not done yet in... I'll let you fill in the blank. Is it Jonah? Sure. But is it you? Is it me? You see, one of the things that we see from this story is God intends to lift up that mirror and to say, Justin, how are you doing in this regard? Has my mercy made you merciful? Has my grace made you gracious? I think of what God says in the book of Micah. He has showed you, O man, O woman, what is good. What does the Lord require of you? To act justly? To love mercy? And to walk humbly with your God? Does walking with God make me a humble person? Does it change the trajectory of my path? Does it help me in those moments when I encounter people in my life who I feel like in no way deserve my mercy? Where I might say to God in the secret of my heart, they don't deserve it. I hate them for what they've done. Does God's mercy toward you make you merciful? Because the story of Jonah up to this point is we're beginning to see that Jonah is a whole lot like me. And perhaps he's a whole lot like you too. So what will our response be? Will the mercy of God make you merciful? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the things that we could learn this morning. We ask that you would apply them deep to our hearts. That you would make us merciful people. That we would love mercy and justice. That we would hold these things in tension. And that we would recognize that we serve a God of justice, but also a God of extravagant mercy. And we ask that, Lord, in the way that we receive it, we would also be quick to give it. That you would humble our hearts that we would be changed forever on account of the gospel. That not just our lives would be changed, but that our hearts would be changed from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh. We ask, Lord, that you would continue to do that good work in us. That you would change us from the inside out. And we thank you in advance for hearing our prayers. 
and for choosing to be and abide with us. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.